Well, I think in order for this sermon to make sense, we need to do a little review about last week's sermon. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 14 with me. John chapter 4. John is the fourth gospel that you'll find in the New Testament, the fourth book of the New Testament. If you're using one of our black pew Bibles, you'll find our text today on page 916. We've already flashed our theme verse already. I'm going to re-read it for you and then do a little bit of review and then launch into today's focus about greater living. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 4, verse 12, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, last week we understood that this passage comes in the midst of what could be called a a constellation text. In chapter 13, Jesus had been talking to the disciples about his departure, and they were obviously upset, confused. All those kinds of things that go with that. And so he offered them three words of consolation. One was the promise of a heavenly home. The last was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in between, he offered them the consolation of the greater works. He said, you know, if I go to the Father, your lives are going to change. And the works that I do, you're going to do. And even greater works than those are you going to do. Now, Just a bit of review, what we discovered last week was, and to summarize it, is this. When we talk about greater works, it's all about Jesus. It's not like Jesus is trying to make us the envy of the world, give us lives that we're just really pumped about, but what what he's really talking about is I want to continue to do through you the things that I did while I was in the world so that the Father could be glorified. And so when we talk about these greater works, it's not about us. It's not about pumping us up. It's about Christ being glorified, and with that, the Father being glorified. And we made an agreement. Well, let me say, I offered for us to enter into a covenant together. And that was, at least for the duration of this series, was to make make a covenant together where we would reject the lie that I think the evil one has led us to buy into. And here's a lie. I I, I really think that somewhere along the line, the vast majority of us, we buy into the lie that that faith really is really, that the evil one tried to convince us that faith is really about just having a crutch to get through life. You know, it's just so hard, and it's difficult, and there's so many challenges, and, and so so our faith is there to just somehow kind of hold us up so we can endure kind of thing. When really it was God's intent that you and I could live victorious lives. That instead of leaning on the crutch, we'd be putting on the crown. Or holding the trophy. Or whatever image works for you. And so we're trying to reject that lie and we're asking the question, what is it that we need to do to be able to live lives that are really marked by greater living? Now, here's the truth that we see from our text today. And I want to focus on a single word, 
But in context, this word is tremendously significant and powerful. Jesus says in verse 12, says, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, what we really need to focus in on is what this word belief means. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus said, these greater works will you do, he wasn't just offering it to the 12 disciples or maybe the 120 who gathered in the upper room. What does he say? He says, the one, you and I, the one who believes will do the works that I do and even greater works than these. The truth is, is that every single one of us, if we have belief in Christ, God's intent, his plan, his will for us is to live lives that are marked by greater. Where the rub is, is we really need to believe in Jesus. And, And I think in many ways, there's just a whole lot of confusion about what does it really mean to believe in Christ in the context of John chapter 12. See, I think sometimes, John chapter 14, verse 12, I think sometimes we... We want to just embrace this kind of in a theoretical sense. Yes, on paper, I understand that this marvelous world couldn't just happen because the universe threw a bunch of parts together and somehow or another became a great world and our bodies just kind of flew together. We understand that there's a maker out there somewhere, and with that, he sent a son, and and, and therefore, and he died for, and so we think of it theoretically. Yeah, I can accept on paper the rationale and accept, and we have a faith in Christ. It's not a theoretical faith that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a practical faith. It's not the one that looks at the boat in the boat and says, I think the boat will float. It's the one who actually gets in the boat and pushes off and goes way offshore. Yeah, went yesterday afternoon to see the new movie Captain Phillips, right? And these guys are out there in these like 18-foot boats with a 50-horsepower motor, and they're like 200 miles offshore. And I'm thinking, are they nuts? Besides that, they're taking on this huge freighter, you know, four guys in a little dinghy, really, you know? I mean, are they nuts? You know, I, I wouldn't go that far from shore in a boat that size. I mean, but real practical faith is we're ready to climb in the boat and go off in the ocean with God because we believe that it'll float. And so... What Jesus is also talking here, he's not talking about a saving faith. He's talking about a lordship kind of faith. You know, there's a lot of us today. I mean, first of all, to live a greater life, you have to have saving faith. Absolutely. If God's going to pour his power in us and then through us do great things, we have to open up the power pipeline. And and until we deal with the problem of sin in our lives, which we've just recalled that God did in the cross, in Christ, there's no way for God's power to be flowing through us. But saving faith, what God can do for us when we die, is not the same thing as lordship faith. Is that what does God want to do in us while we're still alive on the planet? These are two different things. A lot of times we want to say, well, I believe in Jesus, that when I die, I'm going to be resurrected, I'm going to go and spend eternity with him. But we really don't believe that Jesus is going to make us victorious now. You know what I mean? Am I putting you to sleep? You know, because the, 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 the idea is, oops, sorry about that. Oh, look at that. It's a dangerous place up here, I'll tell you that. We, we can be all excited about Christ and what he can do for us in eternity. 
but not have a whole lot of interest in what Christ wants to do in us now and what Christ wants to do through us now. Let that sink in. So believing kind of faith here isn't just a faith that, well, I'm glad to have a Savior, but it's to say, I expect this Christ to be, do something in me now and through me now. It's not just theoretical, it's practical. It's not just about salvation, but it's about living the, the life of Christ here and now. You see, our faith often comes down to what Jesus did for us while he was on the earth. But the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about now is the kind of faith about, that talks about what he can do in and through us now that he's in heaven. Do you understand the difference? You know, we, we get really excited about what's going to happen when we finally graduate to heaven and what God's going to do for us. But what this passage, this belief is talking about is what do we really believe that Jesus can do in us and through us now that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And here's my premise for today. That, that there is at epidemic proportions in the church today the problem that our God is too small. That, that prayer that George mentioned earlier, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is the most appropriate prayer that most of us could be praying. Because the, the biggest challenge to unleashing the greater life in us is increasing the size of our faith in terms of what the Christ who is in heaven can do in us and through us now. And when it comes to that kind of discussion, we have a God that's way too small. And we need to biggie size our faith when it comes to that issue. Now, there's lots of ways that I could go here. But he here's what I think is most helpful for us today. You and I cannot often fix the problem if we can't recognize the problem, right? You know, we can go to the doctor and they can fix lots of things that are wrong with us, but if we don't know that something's wrong with us, we're never going to go get the help, right? You know, you, you hear these horror stories about people who've had brain tumors or other kinds of cancers and just been growing and growing and growing, and they're ignoring all of the symptoms. And then when they finally got to the doctor, the doctor said, you know, if, if we had only known, we could have dealt with this a long time ago. So it's not so much the challenge of recognizing what the problem is it, it, or of knowing how the problem works, but it is recognizing that you and I are suffering from a faith that's too small. So, so what I want to do today is I want to give you just some symptoms to look for in your life that you're suffering from a smallish faith. I mean, I hope your interest is my interest which is, I really want to unleash. I want to rekindle God's greater plan for my life. And it starts right here with, do we really believe that Jesus can do from heaven the things in us that he promised he could do? And the barrier to unleashing that is to allow our faith to grow. And we can't sometimes allow that to happen if we don't see that we're suffering from a smallish faith. So I just, I just want to give you Two symptoms. Now, what, I'm just going to leave it there. How's that? All right. 
I want, to, I want to make sure we understand. We're not talking about what we want God to do in our lives. If you don't want God to be at work in your life, to do these things, etc., that's a whole different issue. It's a whole different message. It's a whole different challenge we have to walk through. And we have that in our lives. There are sometimes we, we just don't want to do what it is that God has for us to do. We don't want to be the people that God wants us to be. That's a whole different issue. But many of us, we have a heart to walk with God. But the thought pattern that dominates our lives is, I can't. I just cannot do that. It, 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 it just won't work. You know, we get to a place in our lives where we think, you know, I, I, just, I just can't turn the other cheek in this scenario. It's suicide. I, I really can't love my enemies. It's just hurts too much. You know, I can't forgive people 70 times 7. You know, something comes down, you know, I, I can't afford to give the way that I think I ought to give because I'd just be too poor. You know, I can't serve the way I think I'm supposed to serve because I just don't have the time. And the list just kind of goes on and on and on. There's many times when we want to do what God wants us to do, but we put up the roadblocks. And then we really are exercising this smallish faith in our lives. And, and I think it's really helpful, at least to me, to know when I'm doing that. So if I can see the symptom, then I can say, no, 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 stop that dummy, you know? And, and, and so we can move forward. So I just want to give you two symptoms to look for in your life. Now, first one, this may sound a little strange to you, but I think as we unpack it, you'll, you'll get the, the gist. You can tell that you're suffering from a smallish faith that's restricting God's greater work in your life when you're focused on the one who's called rather than the one who's doing the calling. Now let that sink in for a minute. When you're focused on the one who's called instead of the one who's doing the calling. Let me give you a couple examples. Turn your Bibles with me over to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. If you're using your pew Bible, I'm going to give you a, a, a text in just a minute, a, a page number, as soon as I get to Exodus chapter 3. So on page 47 in your Bibles, this is the beginning of the story of Moses, right? And Moses has already experienced some of God's protection. Pharaoh had ordered that all of the children, all the sons born to Hebrew women should be killed. Moses escapes that genocide, if you will, and he's raised in Pharaoh's household. But because of his intervention at his own direction to try to help the Hebrews, he's driven off to a foreign land, and that's where God meets him. And I want to pick up the story here in verse 8. Now, Moses is tending to his, his father-in-law Jethro's flocks, and he sees this bush that's burning, and it should stop burning after a while, but it just burns, and it burns, and it burns, and it burns, and it burns. It's just like, kind of like the, the ever-ready bunny, right? It just keeps going and going and going and going. And, and so he says, you know, i got to turn aside and see this thing. And this is what God says to him. He says, I've come down 
Notice who said, God says, I have come down to rescue them, being the Israelites, from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them from that land to a good and a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The, Je- the Israelites cry for help us, come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, he says, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So who's doing the calling there? Who's doing the calling? God, right? Look how Moses reacts. Who am I that I should go? Who's Moses looking at? The one who's called, right? He's looking at himself. You you and I suffer from smallish faith when we're not looking at the one who's doing the calling, but when we're looking at the person who's called. Let's just Keep the story going here a little bit. So first of all, Paul, Moses says, I just don't have the resume for this job, God. You know, I, maybe an internship, but, but I, I don't have the resume for this job. So Mo, God goes on and says, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will, you will all worship God at this mountain. <laughs> Moses says, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, God of our, your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? You know what Moses is really saying is, God, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Who's he looking at? The call. God's saying, I- I'm sending you, and here's going to be a sign. You're going to lead the people right back to where we're standing, and you're going to get to worship me. And so that's the, that's the one who's doing the calling. Moses is focused in on the call. Right? God, I don't know enough. They're going to ask me questions and I'm not going to be able to answer. First of all, I said, well, what God sent you? And I'm going to say, I don't know. You get the point? He's focusing in on the call. Now, it doesn't stop there because Moses is good at this. <laughs> He's good at this. Pick up. The conversation goes on. Let's get over to chapter 4. Just the next page in your Bibles, page 48. God is working through all this stuff and he's giving, he's giving him the sign of the, his staff turning into a snake and putting his hand in his, in his vest, if you will, and pulling it out and it's all leprous and it goes back in and he pulls it out and it's all healed. And so God's giving him these demonstrations. God's focusing on what the caller can do, right? And this is what Moses says. Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. <laughs> Either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant. He says, you know what? I've never been eloquent before. Not even in the last few days, and even now while I'm talking to you, I'm not making a very good argument because I'm not convincing you that you should send somebody else. Because I'm slow and I'm hesitant in the speech. So, so Moses is focusing in on himself again, right? He's focusing on his own abilities. And what does God say? You know, I think if I go back and look at the records, I made your mouth. In fact, I think I made everybody's mouth. So God's looking at the caller, right? You and I suffer from smallish faith. When, we looked at, when we're looking at ourselves instead of looking at God. You think, there's no way I could do this stuff. Duh. You know what I mean? God says, just look at me. This is the stuff that I can do. Now, you know, one, maybe one example is not going to convince you. But let's look at another one. Just, just a, a few more pages a little over in the book of In the Old Testament, we're going to come to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, page 206 in your Bibles, if you're following along. This is the time after the people have moved into the promised land. 
God is supposed to be their king. Okay? They don't have an earthly king. They have God as their king. But the problem is, is that God's not always there in their meetings. So they go off track, and then God brings them back on track, and then he sends a deliverer. In this particular case, it's a guy by the name of Gideon, right? The people of Midian, enemies of the people of God, let the Israelites do all the work, and then when the harvest time comes, they come into the land and they take all the food and they go home. And it leaves the Israelites in a bad spot, okay? So Gideon is threshing out his wheat under the cover of darkness down in a wine press, which is the worst place to do it. There's no wind to separate the wheat from the shaft. And, and he's just trying to get enough bread so that he can eat. And then the angel of the Lord shows up to him in verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, this angel says. And Gideon said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has this all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the, land, the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Gideon. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? So what God, what's God emphasizing? The caller, right? The one who's doing the calling. Look, how, <laughs> look at verse 15. Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. So what is Gideon saying? I'm not a leader. I was not born a leader. Ever had that thought in your own head? I wasn't born a leader. Gideon said, you know what? My family, when it comes to social status, we're at the bottom of the heap. And guess what? Age matters, and I'm the youngest in my family. So you want to get to the lowest of the lows, that's me. So I wasn't born to be a leader. So he's looking at the called, right? What does God say to him? Verse 16, but I will be with you. Now, just so you don't think that everybody has a smallish faith of looking at the called instead of the one doing the calling, take a look with me just very quickly. At 1 Samuel 17. You, you know, if, you're, if you had a chance to kind of read through this passage, you'd pick it up pretty quickly what the story is. 1 Samuel 17. It's on page 268 and 269 in your, in your pew Bibles. This is a story from the life of David. David has been anointed the king, but he hasn't become the king yet. And the people are at war with their enemies, and they're both gathered up, and they're, they're up on the mountains, leaving the valley between them, which is the battlefield. And every single day, there's this giant of a guy by the name of Goliath who comes down and challenges or taunts the armies of God. Now, this guy, if you do the math, is about nine feet tall. Some of you remember last year we had a WPI student here with seven foot six. Remember how tall he looked? I mean, the guy had a duck like a foot and a half to get through our doors, right? This guy's nine feet tall. He's been a warrior since his youth. His muscles, you know, he doesn't have a six-pack. He has a 12-pack, you know. He's just tall enough to have a 12-pack, right? He's just, this is a massive warrior, right? And every single day he stands out there and says, just send me out a warrior and we'll just do this man-to-man. And whoever wins, their nation will be in control. David, and, and, and so what is all the army doing? 
They're looking around saying, he's not big enough. He's not big enough. He's not big enough. He's not big enough. Saul's looking around. He's the king. He's, I'm not big enough. They're all looking at themselves, right? David shows up. Now, he's an impulsive kind of youth anyways, but notice what he says. says, who is this Philistine to taunt the armies of the living God? Who's he looking at? The one who's doing the calling. Right? The one who's doing the calling. And so, and they say, you can't tell Hey, listen, he says, when I'm out protecting the sheep, he says, I'm killing bears, I'm killing lions, I'm killing all kinds of stuff, and God always delivers me. And he's going to deliver the people because he is the king. He is, he, this is the army of the living God. And you know how the story goes. They try to put on Saul's armor onto him, and David can't even hardly stand up. And so he just says, I, I can't use any of that stuff. And he just gets some rocks and his slingshot, and he goes down onto the battlefield. And when Goliath starts to come at him, he just loads up and right in the forehead, and he just falls. Who's David looking at? He's not looking at the called. David is a pipsqueak, a pipsqueak. But he's looking at the God, the living God, whose army it is. You see the difference? You and I are never going to live greater lives. Let me promise We're never going to live greater lives if we're looking at the called instead of the one looking at the caller, the one who's doing the calling. Let me give you another symptom to look for. When we're focused on our circumstances rather than on the Lord of the circumstances. So first we have looking at the called, looking at ourselves, Instead of looking at the caller, there are sometimes we govern our decisions about what we're going to do and can't do in following after this greater God by the circumstances that are around us. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Turn with me to Matthew, the 14th chapter. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. I'll give you a page number in just a minute. You're going to find our text on page 827. This is one of the miracles that we looked at last week as we introduced our series. Jesus walking on the water, right? They fed the 5,000. He's gone up to the, onto the mountaintops to pray. He's, he sent the, the disciples on ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee. It's somewhere between 4 and 6 in the morning. They're, they're having a hard time getting across the lake because the, the, the winds are against them and a storm has come up and... And, and he starts walking on the water to come out to them. And we see in verse 26, when, when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they said, it's a ghost. They cried, and they cried out in fear. And Jesus said, have courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered, command me to come, on, come to you on the water. So Jesus said, okay, hop out of the boat, take a stroll over to me, Come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water. Okay, he started walking on the water. And he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he's afraid. So what's happening? Peter's walking on the water at the command of the one who's doing the calling. Come. Starts looking around. Says, these waves are pretty big. This wind's pretty strong. I can't do this. What's he looking at? The circumstances. And he starts to sink. Starts to sink. (laughs) 
story goes on. So beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught hold of him and he said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Think Jesus is Lord of the circumstances? He can not only walk on the water, he can carry Peter while he's walking on the water. And then he can just make the waves go away. So who's Peter looking at? Circumstances, right? Don't we do that? I mean, I'm old, I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I don't have enough, or I have too little. You know, we get all we, we just got all kinds of reasons why we just can't do the things that God wants us to do. We kind of really want to do, but they're just it just doesn't make any sense in our lives. Because we're looking at the circumstances. Let me give you one more example. John chapter 11. Because you, like you like to verify a truth by more than one witness, right? You guys will recognize this is the story of the death and then the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha had sent for Jesus when Lazarus got sick. Jesus didn't go right away. He waited so that Lazarus could actually die and that through the resurrection, the Son would be glorified and therefore the Father would be glorified. So, Jesus makes his way out to the disciples. Then finally he begins to set out to go there. And look at, and, and he greets, and Martha comes running out to meet him. And we see this in verse 21. This is what Martha says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Okay? Now, in theory, she believes that. Okay? Now, fast forward over. Jesus interacts. He sees also Mary comes out. They go to the tomb. Jesus is moved by all the emotion, the sense of loss. That kind of, he weeps with them. And then it says in verse 38, then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the... He, he was just furious about the toll that death took on man. He said it was a, And he came and it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And he says, remove the stone. And now Martha... Now remember, Martha's the one who said, even now, okay, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's in theory, right? She gets to the... Sto- to get there... And Jesus says, remove the stone. And and Martha kind of slides up next to Jesus and through her tears she said, Lord, he's already stinks. He's been dead for three or four days. Circumstances. The experience tells her, practically, this just doesn't work. Right? Theoretically, whatever you ask of God, God will do. But practically, he's been dead four days. This ain't going to work. She's looking at the circumstances, right? (laughs) <laughs> and what does Jesus say? Didn't I tell that if you, you, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he could look at us in the eye and say today, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see and you'd be the glory of God? Let me give you a positive example, okay? 
We're going to take you back to the Old Testament. We've just been flying around the Bible today. I'm hoping I'm making it a little easier for you through giving you page numbers. We're going to go to the book of Daniel, okay? The third chapter. It's page 750 in your pew Bibles. And I've given you all the references, so you can go book and look at this. But, you know, the Jews here are off in captivity. Their status is growing in Babylon. And there are those that are trying to kind of disenfranchise them and kind of push them back to the periphery. So they come up with a rule that says, hey, you know what? You ought to create this idol, and you ought to command, they're talking to the king, that whenever any music is played, flute, harp, whatever it is, any music is played, people have to bow down and worship the idol because you really are a god, O King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Make that a law. So they made it a law, and they built this image. There's only one problem. The Jews weren't going to follow along. And there's three of them that we come to know. They're Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they don't obey. Music plays, they stay standing. Makes the king furious. So he brings them in and they, and they confess up. He says, are you doing this? You know, let's look, pick up in verse 13. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought in before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the true gold statue that I've set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, I wonder what the zither is, the lyre, the, lyre, the harp, the drum, I, cannot even, I can't sing, I can't even pronounce musical instruments. That's how bad I am at music. The drum and every kind of music, you need to fall down and worship the statue I'd made. But if you don't worship you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue, me out, rescue you out of my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. Now, who, who are they looking at? Are they looking at the circumstances? Or are they looking at the one who is the Lord of the circumstances? Then they go on to even say, but even if he doesn't rescue us, if it's not his will, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. And you know how the story goes. Nebuchadnezzar gets even madder. He gets the furnace even hotter, so it's seven times hotter. Ties the guys up. He wraps them up in all of the flammable clothing he can actually fit onto them, and they toss them into the fire. The fire is so hot that the guys who dump them in are the ones that actually get killed themselves. And then they're looking in, and there's this blazing fire going. And you, you know what they see? They see four guys dancing in the fire. And he said, King said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I went to math class. There's one, there's two, there's three. But somehow three doesn't equal four. How many people do we throw in that fire anyways? They're looking at the Lord of the circumstances. Instead of the circumstances. Now, it's time for me to conclude. All right? We've looked at four negative examples. Moses, Gideon, Peter, Martha. Looking at them, looking at the called instead of looking at the caller. They're, they're looking at the circumstances instead of the Lord of the circumstances. But every single one of these people eventually got it right. Every single one of them eventually got it right. Moses 
God looking at the Lord, the one who's doing the calling instead of himself. Same with Gideon. Peter learned how to move beyond his circumstances and trust in the Lord of the circumstances. They did it. If we believe in Him, we can do it. The choice is ours. The one who believes in me, that's our choice. The works that I do, He will do. And even greater works will He do. Because I go to the Father. What do you believe about what the Christ who is in heaven can do through you today on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps there are many, perhaps all of us feel a lot like that father of the sick child that George referenced just a moment ago. Where he says, you know, Lord, Lord, if it's possible, heal my, heal my child. She said, with God, all things are possible. And God, inside of us, there is a war today. Are we going to believe? Or are we going to be dominated by our unbelief? God, as we reject the lie that our faith is only intended to be a crutch, and we embrace the truth that it's supposed to be a way to living victoriously, living greater lives now. Let us see where our faith is smallish. And choose the better way. The greater way. For Jesus' glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.